A glittering playing career is far from a prerequisite for being a top-class manager. Jose Mourinho can attest to that, as can legendary Italian coach Arrigo Sacchi, who famously said, you don't have to have been a horse to be a jockey. Despite Sacchi's wise words, many of our favourite nostalgic names in the game have gone on to have weird and wonderful careers in and around the technical area while the playing careers of some of the big name gaffers have undoubtedly been overshadowed by their achievements off the field. Today on The Eleven, we delve into these stories in compiling the In The Dugout Eleven. Hello, Ben. Hello, Arthur. Yes, we are a podcast that picks out nostalgic and obscure names from the world of football and tells their stories. Uh, And like Arthur says, today it's players who've gone on to be managers. Uh, And we have some really unusual picks. Don't expect Pep Guardiola on this podcast. We're playing a 4-4-2 today and you can get in touch with us at 11pods on Twitter to make your suggestions. So breaking from tradition with picking the in between the sticks first, today the goalkeeper is actually up for grabs. We have a few nominations from some friends of the show a little later. So kicking us off, left back. Yes, a left back who went on to be a manager. And I have picked Robert Yarny. Slightly rings a bell. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, I think Robert Yarny was one of the most underrated players of his generation. I think one of his greatest achievements was playing all seven games at the 1998 World Cup for Croatia. He scored one of the best goals of that tournament in the quarterfinal win against Germany. Uh, A sweet strike across the goalkeeper, thunderbolt into the bottom corner. Uh, And Croatia would finish third in that tournament. I don't know whether you remember the great Davor Suker scoring his goals. Oh, how could I forget? He's an 11 stalwart. He certainly is. Yeah, so Robert Yarny, one of the understated players of that fantastic Croatian side. And in fact, he was actually the 14th highest appearance maker for his nation uh, on 81. That record still stands. Um, He started his playing career in the late 80s with Hajduk Split, which is a team that I've actually seen live, Arthur. I remember you did a little, little pilgrimage to the incredible stadium they had a few years ago, didn't you? Yeah, we did, actually. And we were in the ultras which was quite something. As a Reading fan, I just felt right at home in that raucous atmosphere. So Um, similar to the family stand. Yeah, exactly, with Kingsley the Lion. Um, But his career went from strength to strength on the field, Robert Yarny. He would play for Juventus and Real Betis at the highest level. uh, And ultimately, he'd play for Real Madrid. Uh, But this is a bizarre story about his career. He actually would move to Real Madrid via Coventry City. Okay, maybe that's why his name's ringing a bell for me. Did he play much for them? He didn't play at all, Arthur. Um, The story (laughs) goes like this. Um, Real Betis didn't want to let the 30-year-old leave to a La Liga rival. Um, So despite interest from Real Madrid, they held firm and eventually accepted a £2.6 million bid from Coventry, much to everyone's bemusement. At that point, Coventry were a mid-table side at best and um, people were bemused that such a high-profile player was was moving to High Field Road to ply his trade. 
He'd watch a preseason game against Espanyol from the stands, but six days later, he was sold to Real Madrid for £1 million more without ever having even worn a Coventry kit. Um, oh. And this caused all sorts of speculation. Was it a loophole organised by Real Madrid that they would get Coventry to purchase the player and then buy him for a million pound profit? Um, or was it just simply coincidence? Yarni tried to clear this up, saying that the move to Coventry was actually a genuine move. Uh, but apparently his wife and kids weren't too happy about the move to the Midlands. And when an offer to move to Madrid came up, um, obviously the family jumped at it. In perhaps a bizarre turn of events to end a bizarre story, uh, Coventry would reinvest that £3.6 million from Real Madrid in Paul Hall and Mark Edworthy to try and bolster their squad ahead of the campaign. Not quite of the same level. But he got his first managerial role, Yarni, in 2007, back at Hajduk Split. Um, unfortunately, it was a pretty disappointing season. They finished fifth. Um, 30 points behind rivals Dinamo Zagreb. And he would go on to have several other spells in Eastern Europe. He'd be at Istra, Sarajevo, Pex, and Pushkas Academia in Hungary. Um, <laughs> his career was sadly on the decline in management rather than on the way up. But his most recent spell in management, I think, was the most interesting and peculiar. He managed Northeast United of the Indian Premier League for six months between 2019 and 2020, uh, during the time his compatriot Igor Stimak was the national manager of India. And I don't know whether they persuaded each other to take up those jobs. He had uh, had the chance to manage some big characters at Northeast United, including Asamoa Gyan. Um, wow. But sadly, that spell would also end in tears. Um, he had a miserable 11 game winless run, which took Northeast United down to ninth out of 10 teams uh, and eventually got the sack. So I'd say Yarni's playing career was far more successful than his managerial career has been so far. Um, but nice to reminisce about that nostalgic name that, that did make that transition into the dugout. It's bizarre to think that a player. Uh, like Asamoa Gyan spearheading your strike force, you can do so poorly in the Indian Premier League. I struggle to see how that's happened because Gyan was quite good at Sunderland, although I don't know how impressive his attitude was. I know he failed a medical once at Reading for being somewhat overweight. So I don't know whether he'd lost some of that panache by the time he arrived at Northeast United. Who's going to be playing alongside him at centre back that, that was also in the dugout recently? Herman Horidason. Oh, did he manage? He did indeed. You know, potentially a prospect in the uh, in the dugout. You never know. Just moving into his playing career first. After four seasons with his native IBV in the Icelandic league, okay. at the final of which saw him lead the club to their first title in 18 years, he embarked on a journey of 15 seasons in England, making 315 Premier League appearances with Palace. Wimbledon, Ipswich, Charlton and Portsmouth. And it's actually that Portsmouth spell that I remember most clearly. Uh, I would say that along with Linvoy Primus, he's one of the very few Portsmouth players I actually just really liked. I don't, yeah. don't know whether you remember him as a player much. Yeah, I remember watching him quite a lot, actually. Also at Charlton. He played for Correct. Charlton for a while, I think. 
He was. And actually, it was their relegation in 2007 from the Premier League that triggered a free transfer clause. And he got his move to Portsmouth, where he went on to win the FA Cup in his first season, uh, as well as scoring in the infamous 7-4 Premier League victory over your beloved Reading, Ben. Yeah, I don't like to talk about that game. Horidison became something of a cult hero, I would say, amongst Portsmouth fans, widely uh, admired for his general wholeheartedness and pretty manic aggression in the tackle. He would jump into challenges and had a fairly distinctive way of running. He sort of had pretty high knees. He pumped his fists. Teammates uh, were also said to have been um, appreciative of his performance of Elvis songs in a karaoke session the night before the FA Cup final. So a real character off the field as well. He was one of the few members actually of that FA Cup squad that stuck with the club through the lower reaches uh, of the championship. He was actually relegated from the Premier League five times. It's a record of Premier League relegations. He holds jointly with Nathan Blake, which is a a bit of a niche. blast from the past. (laughs) There's also a great moment where in the 2018 World Cup, during a group stage match between Iceland and Nigeria, you can see a replica shirt wearing Horidison, caught in the crowd on television cameras. Um, he's fist bumping in the crowd this time, not while he's he's running. Um, <laughs> after a penalty has been awarded to Iceland and he breaks his sunglasses in the celebration. He rejoined IBV as player manager in 2013 and he struck up this interesting relationship with former Portsmouth teammate, David James. He signed him for IBV. I think that's quite a a niche spell for the veteran England goalkeeper, I'd say. I had no idea David James had played abroad. He also had spells in charge of the men's and women's team of Filkir, which incidentally was a team that his ex-wife, who was also an Icelandic international, managed the women's team a few years before him. But then he teamed up once more with David James. He was David James's assistant at Kerala Blasters in the Indian Super League in 2018. And then he was appointed assistant to Sol Campbell at Southend. He's really led a very interesting career in management. It's all been kind of um, working with big names and yeah. getting positions in, in teams that you don't really expect him to crop up in, really. And also hopping around the world, you know, from Iceland to India, back to the UK. Is there any sign of Herman breaking into the higher tiers of English management anytime soon? So I'd say that he's taken an encouraging step in the last year or so. He's moved back to the club where it all began, IBV. It just feels at home there, I'd say. He is now manager rather than player manager. And they're currently sitting in second position in the Icelandic uh, top division. They were sixth last year, so showing signs of improvement. I desperately love to see Herman Horidesson managing over here. I feel he's a real character. He's clearly got good contacts in the game, which could potentially help him delve into the transfer market. Fingers crossed for Herman. Hopefully we see him over here soon. Amazing. And alongside him, a name that will be fondly remembered by many of our Welsh listeners, Chris Coleman. Oh, what a manager. Well, was he was he a great manager? I well, didn't... that's interesting, yes. actually, Arthur, because he is probably best known for that Welsh managerial spell. Um, Euro 2016, he guided them to the semi-finals. He managed to get the best out of Hal Robson-Carnu and Sam Vokes, which is no mean feat. And he guided Wales to their highest ever international ranking of eighth. But really, his managerial career was quite mixed. 
Um, he had fairly miserable spells at Sunderland and Coventry in the championship, and he failed to follow up on a promising spell at Fulham with odd spells at Real Sociedad, Hebei China Fortune, and AEL in Greece. So I would say a fairly mixed flamboyant managerial career really for Chris Coleman but I wanted to dig a little deeper into his time as a player um, because that was very much at the start of my interest in football and yours as well Arthur and it was cut short fairly tragically he started his professional career playing with Swansea City helping them win the Welsh Cup in 89 and 91 and that isn't Perhaps the most impressive achievement, winning the Welsh Cup. I can't really think of too many clubs that would be in contention. Well, the giants of the new saints. I'm yeah, sure. <laughs> total network solutions. Exactly. <laughs> um, he was naturally a centre-back, Chris Coleman, physical and savvy. Uh, he's actually six foot two. I never really yeah. saw him as a tall person, as a manager. But he was actually occasionally employed as a makeshift centre-back. He had his big move to play under Steve Koppel in 1991 at Crystal Palace, uh, and he had a decent goal tally, 143 appearances and 16 goals during that period. He impressed enough to sign for the then champions of England, Blackburn Rovers, for £2.8 million in 1995. But his time was dogged by Achilles injuries and he struggled to make an impact. So quickly took the opportunity to move down the divisions and reinvigorate his career at Fulham. He quickly became club captain and led them to promotion under Kevin Keegan in 1998-99. And he remained as captain and a regular in the team under Jean Tigana in 2000-2001. But then tragedy struck. He would break his leg in a car crash and never play a first team game again. It was an injury that he never really bounced back from and and a shame really to cut that career short. You mentioned the name John Tagana. Always a, a manager that's fascinated me on the basis that I believe he was an incredibly talented coach and had a great deal of success in France when he was a manager there. Um, but I think it all ended in tears at Fulham when... I think they tried to sue him for deliberately making bad transfers or something like that. <laughs> Over-investing <laughs> in players that How were not... You, it's just bizarre. How can you deliberately make bad transfers? That's I don't know whether strange. they thought he was in collusion with the agents or I have oh, no idea. But I think he managed to clear his name of that, that account. But it's very interesting to hear of the playing career of, frankly, someone who in my mind is only really a manager. To me, he, he's Fulham. He is Fulham's manager mm. in... A very successful period for them. You said it was a promising spell, and it's just a disappointment that that and Wales were his only successes in his career of management. He has been nicknamed Cookie since childhood. So I was trying to find out why. Um, It turns out it's because his friends likened his eating habits to the Cookie Monster from Sesame Street. He said, I was quite a big young boy, and my friends called me Cookie Monster as I was forever eating biscuits. Apparently, dependent on who you believe, I don't know whether you can confirm or deny this, Arthur, he has a cookie tattooed on his bum for this reason. Really? I don't, actually, I don't know how you're going to confirm or deny that. <laughs> oh, that was I, an odd... I, I, yeah, Chris Coleman's bum. I There we go. Yeah. Great. Do you? I guess, I don't know why you would know that. I haven't I, seen it, I'm no, afraid. I, I also yeah. haven't seen it, but if anyone really? has seen it, 
do let us know at 11 pods that's the word and not the number moving swiftly on <laughs> from bum to willie it's willie sanyol at right back <laughs> So Willie Sagnol started his playing career with his dad's former club, Haute-Loire, before moving to Saint-Étienne. Uh, he then followed it up with a move to Monaco, where under John Tigana, the uh, legend of French football, a talented Monaco side knocked Man United out of the Champions League in 1998 uh, on away goals after one all draw at Old Trafford. And then Willie won his first silverware with the league title in 2000. His excellent form saw him pressing for a call-up to represent the national team, but initially he was overlooked, and that's largely down to the fact that France had an incredibly talented right-back who was pretty immovable when it came to the national team, and that was Lillian Turam. The retirement of Marcel Desailly was a real godsend for Willy Sagnol as it shifted Turam into the centre of defence and allowed Sagnol to become the first-choice right-back. I'd say he's most well-known in club football for his time at Bayern Munich, where he made 184 appearances and scored seven goals. He was known for his excellent crossing ability, uh, and he played for them during an immensely successful period for the club. He won five Bundesligas, four German Cups, and a Champions League. Clearly, given his name, chance of Willy would <laughs> echo around the Allianz Arena whenever he was on the ball. So it would have been entertaining watching him back in those days. Uh, he also played for France in the World Cup in 2002 and six, with his team reaching the final in the latter. And Sagnol was named as one of the tournament's most outstanding defenders. History dictated that Italy would go on to, to win the tournament. And actually, Sagnol blamed Sylvain Wiltord, not Zinedine Zidane for that defeat. Of course, Ooh. Zinedine Zidane it was who headbutted Marco Materazzi. However, Sagnol saw it differently. He pointed out that if Wiltord hadn't stopped, the referee would never have made the decision to halt play, which I think is a little bit harsh on Sylvain Wiltord. I think yeah. naturally if you see a headbutt happening, I think you're probably going to uh, go to notice. And I know back then VAR wasn't a thing, but I'm sure the referee would have been able to realise what had happened. <laughs> That's a really bizarre story. I mean, I, I must confess, Willie Sagnol was a name that brought up lots of memories of a very, very strong fullback. But I also noticed that you were putting him in and thought I'd look at the slightly ruder side of Willie Sagnol. So obviously the name Willie is quite unfortunate. I did find an article, which I, I would recommend people look up, uh, which is the 11 rudest names in football. And uh, I quite enjoyed some of them. Brian Penis, Ralph Minge, and I think my favourite, actually, there was an Algerian midfielder in the 70s called Arse Bandit. <laughs> anyway, sorry about that intermission. Um, it's the content we know our listeners need in their lives. Yeah, <laughs> but, but Sagnol as a, as a manager, that wasn't something I was too familiar with. So he actually went into management fairly early because he had to retire at only 31 uh, with pretty acute Achilles tendon pain. He's had jobs with France under 20s, with Bordeaux, um, with whom he had an up and down time, emerging with a 40% win ratio, uh, but some reasonably encouraging form. Uh, and he also became very briefly Bayern Munich's interim manager. However, the latest appointment 
just struck me as a bit bizarre seeing an international manager like Willy Sagnol with of repute. You know, he is a well-known, established player. And yeah. he's managing currently Georgia, which seems... Is he? He is. He was appointed in February in 2021. That's, that's a bizarre combination. It really is. They have a world ranking of 93, so they're pretty low down the pyramid. He has, however, won his last three games for them, including a stunning 2-0 victory over Sweden. We could have the future Pep Guardiola we're talking about here. Who knows? We like reminiscing about nostalgic footballers on this podcast. Yeah. Um, But I wanted to raise awareness for 20-year-old Ruben Kazan winner, Kvitscha Kvaratskalia, who is (laughs) honestly a future... He's going to win the Ballon d'Or. Have you been spending time on YouTube again, Arthur? I have, honestly. His highlight videos are amazing uh, so thank you willie for completing our back four more to come from it switch yes there is herman Haradison. so as regular listeners of the podcast will know we like to break up the 11 a little bit because we know that all these nostalgic names can get a little bit too much at times and so Today, I have prepared a mini quiz for you, Ben. Oh. Uh, and, it's a, and it's a quiz whereby you have to say which manager said this quote. Oh, man, is, that's tough. It could be tough. However, I'm, I'm prepared to make it multiple choice for you. Kicking us off with number one. Sometimes you look in a field and you see a cow and you think it's a better cow than the one you've got in your field. Oh, would you like the multiple choice? I think I'm going to need it. I mean, I I presume that's about the transfer market. It might well be. Uh, Your options are Felix Magat, Sir Alex Ferguson or Jurgen Klopp. I don't think the latter are crazy enough. So I'd go Felix Magat. I'm afraid it is Sir Alex. Really? Yeah, he said that about Wayne Rooney's proposed transfer to Man City in 2010. Almost trying to say sometimes the grass isn't greener, but saying it in a very weird way. Yeah. Wow. And that's kind of comparing Rooney to a cow. I'm not sure how complimentary that is. Exactly. Maybe his his form at Man U nosedived after that quote. (laughs) Question two. Young managers are a bit like melons. Only when you open and taste the melon are you 100% sure that the melon is good. Sometimes you have beautiful melons, but they don't (laughs) taste very good. (laughs) What? And your your options here are Jose Mourinho, Sven-Goran Eriksson, or Louis van Gaal. Oh, that is a crazy quote. Um, I can imagine Louis van Gaal saying that. (laughs) I'm afraid it's Jose. Really? He was saying it about Chelsea's academy players as a result of criticisms for not playing them enough. He's a philosophical man. He likes making people think. So that's what he was trying to do there. I love that quote. Your third one is, I've got more important things to think about. I've got a yoghurt to finish. The expiry date is today. (laughs) (laughs) And your options for this are Roy Keane, Gordon Strachan, or Ian Dowie? I don't think Ian Dowie would say that. 
I can imagine Gordon Strachan likes a Muller corner. I'm going to go for Gordon Strachan. You are quite right, Ben. Off yes. the mark. Brilliant. <laughs> he said this about selection priorities at Southampton uh, okay. when he was questioned on whether he would select Augustin Delgado or not. <laughs> and he, he selected his yogurt instead. <laughs> Your next one is, he's six foot, fit as a flea, good looking. He's got to have something wrong with him. Hopefully he's hung like a hamster. That would make us feel a bit better. (laughs) (laughs) Having said that, me missus has a hamster at home and his cock's massive. (laughs) Please say that's like Roy Hodgson or something. Is is that Chris Wilder, Mick McCarthy or Ian Holloway? Oh my goodness. I'm going to say Mick McCarthy. Oh, Ben, it's classic Holloway. Is it? Oh, I thought that was the obvious one and I, yeah. I got I got tricked. I wasn't trying Damn. to mislead you, Ben. He was talking about Cristiano Ronaldo there. I just love these quotes. I mean, sometimes I think the game is too sanitised. I, I miss okay. these managerial quotes. The final one for you, Ben. If you eat caviar every day, it's difficult to return to sausages. Wow. (laughs) And and your options here are Arsene Wenger, Pep Guardiola, or Carlo Ancelotti. Oh, I'd I'd like to get two. One seems a bit bit pitiful. I'm going to go for Pep. I'm afraid it's a pitiful one for you, Ben. Oh, no. The answer to this one is Arsene Wenger. And he was saying this after the Arsenal fans booed the team following a one-all draw with Middlesbrough in 1998. That was a good quiz, though. I enjoyed that. It was a tough one. And frankly, you know, I don't want to get too carried away, but as Question Master here, it's very satisfying that you didn't get all of them right for once. Yeah, (laughs) I I have to hold my hands up and say that I I didn't perform well there. But I'd, I'd love to be told that some of our listeners have improved on that one out of five. Well, following that quiz, we had Willie on the right and we've got Illy on the left. I've got the left midfield and I've gone for Romanian international, Ilya Dumitrescu. Wow, that's, that's, well, no, who's that? (laughs) (laughs) Well, Ilya Dumitrescu um, brought about immense excitement at White Hart Lane when a grey suited, dapper looking chap turned up to sign. He arrived in the Premier League after some outstanding performances at the 1994 World Cup, which saw him help Romania to the quarterfinals. Um, He was a key player in Romania's surprise 3-2 victory over previous runners-up Argentina, scoring the first two goals and assisting the third. And Tottenham paid £2.6 million for him, um, so quite a lot of money uh, to lure him away from his boyhood club Stoia Bucharest, where he'd spent the first eight years of his professional career. But sadly, it wouldn't prove to be a fantastic signing. He'd be a bit underwhelming. Technical, persistent and prolific during his early days, uh, but then it started to fade. It was just a bit of a flash in the pan. And although he was considered part of Ozzy Ardiles' famous five fluid front line, his form wouldn't be maintained beyond four goals in 18 appearances. He was flogged to West Ham in 96, but this time failed to score. 
Um, and he then suffered problems with his work permit, with his career petering out and him ending up at Stoya Bucharest via South America before his retirement. This sounds like another one of those classic signings off the back of an international tournament. It reeks of Carol Poborski. Yes, I 100% agree with you. Um, it, it really didn't work out for really, sadly. And I think impatience and spontaneity, recklessness kind of followed him throughout his playing career and perhaps didn't make him the perfect fit for management. But he pursued it nevertheless and uh, has a long CV of obscure clubs across Europe. These include Brasov, Lenarka, Limassol, Akrotitos, amongst others. In fact, he actually managed 13 clubs in under 10 years. Wow. It's remarkable, isn't it? Surely that's a red flag for all of those other clubs. He doesn't tend to last long, poor old Ely. Um, His final two managerial spells were the most interesting. Uh, He was sacked from Panthrokikos after just one game. It was a defeat to Arachlis in the opening match of the Super League uh, in an off-season where the club had made 17 new signings. So it seems a little bit unfair to judge him on just that one game. He then took the Stoyer job and he signed on for just 19p, claiming he was doing his old club a favour to get them out of trouble. The thing I find most bizarre about this, he then left 40 days later resigning saying he does not want to stay somewhere where he is not wanted surely the alarm bell was there when you signed for 19p what what were you expecting illy that's hilarious i think he was fed up with the lack of movement in the transfer window and the lack of quality of some of the players and just threw in the towel expecting Um, 17 signings yeah from stoya bucharest exactly like he'd had at panthrokikos um, so eventually, Illy decided management wasn't for him. He's been quite successful. He runs a restaurant in the centre of Bucharest and sells art for as much money as possible uh, to line his pockets. He's become a bit of a businessman. But I just thought that name, Illy Dumitrescu, would ring a few bells for people. Uh, and they might not know that he had had a fairly eventful career in the dugout. In the centre of the park, as a holding player in this midfield, I've introduced Sunday Olise to the team. Oh, wow. That 98 World Cup goal celebration still sticks with me. Oh, I love that. So good. He began his career at Julius Berger in his native (laughs) Nigeria uh, before European spells at Belgian club RFC Liège, uh, Italian side Reggiana and FC Köln of Germany. He helped Nigeria to enormous success. That included Olympic football gold in 1996. And then he also played for Dutch Giants Ajax from 97 to 99, picking up the Dutch Eredivisie and two Dutch Cup titles. He was absolutely a member of the golden generation of Nigerian football. Uh, He played alongside JJ Kocha, Kanu, Fanidi George, and he released a (laughs) fast-selling book, Audacity to Refuse, which details challenges, untold stories, tough decisions he had to make along the way. He's a celebrated author, our Sunday. (laughs) Audacity to Refuse just sounds like three words that he's put in a random order. I don't know what that means. It's like the creation of an apprentice team name. (laughs) 
It's like we're going to be. So he also played for Juventus, uh, Borussia Dortmund, Bochum, and Genk during his club career, and he earned 63 caps for Nigeria. He played in two African Cup of Nations and two World Cups before he retired from international football in 2002. Interestingly, his brother, Churchill Olise, right. is credited with discovering Nigerian international Obafemi Martins playing street football in Lagos. Very random. Oh. In his managerial career, I mean, it started off when he was manager of his country, which is a big role to start off with. Yeah. From 15 to 16, he was their manager. It went pretty well on the field. Off the field, however, it was an absolute shambles. He resigned as Nigeria's national coach at 2.28 a.m. on the 26th of February 2016, barely eight months into his stay as manager. And he cited contract violations, lack of support, unpaid wages and benefits to his players and himself. So he took a step into club management. He managed Fortuna Sittard, who were in the Dutch second division. They were placed 18th and they were free-falling, frankly. At the midway point of his first season in charge, they were top of the table and they'd won seven league games in a row between November and January. He was a really talented manager, clearly. Uh, the team was young, the goals were reining in and the football was free-flowing. However, this proved to be a little bit of an illusion. He went on a three-game losing streak and suddenly everything changed. He said, and I quote, I opened the door of the dressing room and my assistant said, have you read the newspaper? You've been sacked. He showed me on his phone and I thought, oh, that's nice. A nice way to hear that then. 10 minutes later, the club put out a statement saying that they hadn't sacked me. Essentially, they claimed they hadn't. Yeah. However, the newspapers were reporting it. And then about three weeks later, he actually was sacked. So it was Aww. a bizarre kind of turn of events and really slightly reactionary to a tiny turn of form after a really, really promising start. That's such a shame. I love, by the way, that you'd, you'd actually researched the exact time of his resignation from the Nigeria role. I thought that was going to be significant, but it wasn't. <laughs> did you... Did you type into Google what, what time did Sunday Elise resign? I just okay. think it's quite stark considering that a coach would hand in their notice at such a random time in the early morning. Yeah, um, yeah. But actually his, his departure from Fortuna Sittard was a bit sad, really. Firstly, he claimed the reason he was fired wasn't because of results. It was because he refused to participate in, and I quote, illegal activities at the club. I'm a bit intrigued as to what those were, but I, I don't really know what they are. And actually, there were accusations of racism. He said, sadly, his was the only office at the club that was not cleaned. He had to clean his own office as they wouldn't clean the room of a black man, which I think is a horrible experience in management, especially when he was showing such promising signs at a young age. Yeah, that's I mean, that's disgraceful to hear about the treatment of Sunday Elise as a manager but but also great to hear about a young black manager who is looking promising and and hopefully like you say will get another job um, either in Europe or or even on a different continent and be successful as a manager once again I think it's really important to highlight that um, and actually alongside him as a holding midfielder is another very inspirational black manager I've gone for Aliou Cisse 
Oh, what a name. I haven't heard that name in a long time, Ben. Oh, I I, I really have some bizarre fondness for Ali Ucise. I think it's because of watching him in the 2002 World Cup. But if you haven't perhaps heard of him, he's a dreadlocked Senegalese football manager. Um, he's been through immense heartbreak in his life. He lost several members of his family in the MV Lejula ferry disaster off the coast of Gambia. Um, there was real tragedy. I mean, multiple members of his family lost their, lost their lives. Um, and he's now a pioneer and inspiration for black managers across the world. He's managed Senegal since 2015. Um, the gaffer for players like Mane, Koulibaly and Kuyate. Uh, and he qualified Senegal for the World Cup in 2018. You might remember they were knocked out in the group stages, but they actually were the first team ever to be eliminated due to fair play tiebreaker rules, which seems incredibly unfair and controversial. Um, he also coached Senegal at the 2019 African Cup of Nations, helping them to their first ever final since 2002. Um, but they would miss out on their first African trophy in the final to Algeria. Um, do you know who is managing Algeria at the moment, Arthur? Do you know what? I believe I do. I think it's Southampton legend, Jamal Belmardi. Correct. It is Jamal <laughs> Belmardi. <laughs> Overall, um, Ali Cisse has a 61% win ratio in management, which is mighty impressive. I know Senegal are mainly playing weaker African sides, but 61% really is standout. And I really can't imagine it's going to be too long before a domestic club in Europe come knocking for his services. I thought I'd take us back to what Ali Ucise was like as a player because he did play over here in the UK. He was a tetchy and incredibly dirty central defensive midfielder as a player. Five foot 11, he wasn't the tallest in that role, but he had so much bite and determination. He'd be a bit part player for Lille and PSG, but impressed hugely in that 2002 World Cup, um, playing alongside the likes of Papa Bupa Diop and along with the likes of El Hadj Juf, who would manage to get a move to the Premier League off the back of that tournament, he would sign for Birmingham City. It was there that his short temper and ill discipline would define him. Cissé made his first appearance for the club at Arsenal on the opening day of the season, but was sent off. Um, and though the sending off was rescinded, he would go on to receive five yellow cards in six games, ultimately accumulating 10 yellow cards before the new year, which is mighty impressive, to be honest. That is insane. His season was cut short, having picked up an injury, um, and it ruled him out for the rest of the season. And so that would mean that in his first season, he received a card in more than 50% of the games he played in the Premier League, which sums up just how dirty he was. He did improve that discipline. He played for Portsmouth for a while, um, but he never really dominated games in the same way as he did for his nation. And, and my overall memory of him as a player was baggy shirts and total 90 boots. If you look back at pictures of him during his playing days, he, he really was synonymous with both of those things. It strikes me that he was the only black manager at the 2016 World Cup. And he did comment on this, which I thought was interesting. He said, football is a universal sport and the colour of your skin is of very little importance. It's good to have a black coach here and it shows we have quality coaches among us. 
I represent a new generation that would like to have its place in African and world football. We're very good with tactics. We have the right to be a part of top international coaches. In European countries, in major clubs, you see lots of African players. Now we need African coaches for our continent to move forwards. So uh, an inspirational quote and fingers crossed Aliou is right and he gets his move in the near future. Fingers crossed. But I'm also enjoying the fact that in the centre of the park, we have two absolute wrecking balls at defensive midfield. The team is it's really def- coming together, isn't it? It's a defensive lineup, but my God, we're going to be tough to score against. <laughs> my only concern is that with all these managers playing in our side, are they all going to be bossing each other around? I mean, are there too many leaders in this pack? They might just bring all their different ideas to the table, but maybe we have one overarching manager who does sit on the sideline. Ah, okay. He basically compiles all these views. Sounds sensible. Maybe we'll decide that at the end. Who's on the right side of the midfield, Arthur? I've gone for Timur Ketspire. (laughs) Okay, have you? Well, the hoardings are in for a kicking. The beginning of his professional career was in 1987 in his native Georgia. Uh, he played for Dynamo Tbilisi, uh, and then he played for Cypriot side Anorthosis and Greek giants AEK Athens before running down his contract in the Greek capital and arriving at St. James's Park and Newcastle United on a free transfer in 1997. Despite being a fairly average footballer, he gained something of a cult following for two reasons, mainly. Uh, the first of these was scoring the goal in extra time of the Champions League qualifier against Croatia Zagreb uh, that took Newcastle into the competition for the first time in their history. The second of these incidences was so extraordinary that it's what he's remembered for most fondly or prominently. <laughs> uh, after he scored the winning goal against Bolton Wanderers in a Premier League match, he proceeded to aggressively kick the advertising hoardings in celebration. He's taken his top off. He's looking kind of angrily towards the fans and booting this advertising hoarding so ferociously. I I don't really know what's going through his mind. It's kind of like an out-of-body experience. It really is. It's like he's been possessed. And, and it feels... I was going to say it feels like an overreaction. Of course, it bloody feels like an overreaction. But yeah, there's a lot going on in his mind at that time. There absolutely is. After leaving Newcastle in 2000, his playing career slightly petered out. He went to Wolves, Dundee United, Anarthosis Famagusta, which is the club that he played for first in Cyprus, before he retired in 2004 and became their manager. His managerial career has been an absolute roller coaster. During a five year spell in charge of Cypriot club, Anorthosis, Ketspire led the team to two league titles, domestic cup and super cup triumphs, as well as taking the club into the Champions League group stages for the first time in their history. That seems to be a recurring trend for him. This was when he was first linked with the Newcastle job in 2008, and that followed the resignation of Kevin Keegan. He said of the links, I had a great opportunity to play at Newcastle, so why not as a manager? And it's kind of a running trend that we see throughout his managerial career and a running joke amongst Newcastle fans that they're pretty much linked with him every time they had a managerial vacancy in the late noughties and 2010s. It was, however, Olympiakos that took a chance on him in May 2009. 
And again, he got off to a very promising start. He won five of his first six games in charge and he drew the other one. Bizarrely, though, there were murmurs of discontent about Mm. the team's defensive style of play from both the fans and the club's hierarchy. And so, remarkably, he was sacked without ever losing a match or conceding a goal. That's insane. That is insane. Absolutely bonkers. And I think it's akin to Claude Puel at Southampton, who had an immensely successful season, finishing eighth. But we had seven nil-nils in that season. And so the fans just couldn't deal with the style of play. They just wanted him out. There followed five years with his international side, Georgia, the second Georgia coach in the team today. Yeah. uh, Before he moved to Cyprus's biggest team, uh, Apoel Nicosia. Back in familiar surroundings, he established a four-point lead at the top of the table uh, with just four games to play. Again, however, misfortune struck. He lost in the Cypriot Cup semi-finals, and that saw him relieved of his duties. And then the team went on to win the title without him, <laughs> which is oh, a little unfair. Man. This feels like one of the unluckiest 11s we've ever put together, as well as our in-the-dugout 11, no? I completely agree. He was a talented manager, but it was just that defensive style of play that really rankled with the fans. He had a seven-game spell at AEK Athens a little later in his career, and he was dismissed for the same reason, really. The fans were pretty discontented with that style. Uh, However, on this occasion, he at least did pursue the club for adequate compensation, and he walked away with a hundred grand for unfair dismissal. Uh, and he's now back at Anorthosis, uh, and he won the cup last season. Sadly, he's no closer to the Newcastle manager's job, but at least he does seem to be a success at Anorthosis, pretty much exclusively. <laughs> Amazing. I can't help but notice that he has now also got his own LinkedIn page. And I kind of wonder whether this is part of the process you go through when you transition from football player to football manager things get serious and you start taking things like LinkedIn quite seriously it always amuses me that then other football managers will go and endorse them for things like management and scouting (laughs) as if that's going to help you get your next job well welcome to the side Tamuri gets by Piero heads out Odyssey oh what a goal Sunday Odyssey with a wonder strike. Two up front today. Who are you choosing, Ben? Well, I mentioned that Robert Yarney had a spell at Coventry City without playing. This player actually did play for Coventry City. John Aloisi. Oh, Australian striker? Absolutely. Yes, well done. Um, Six foot one, bulky centre forward and an Australian trailblazer, really. In a professional career that spanned 20 seasons with league totals of 459 games and 127 goals, he was the first Australian ever to play and score in La Liga, the Premier League and Serie A. So he led the way for the likes of Mark Viduca, really, to come over and make an impact. And I perhaps remember John Eloisi best from a video game on PlayStation 1. It was called Stars of the Premiership. And it was fantastic. The graphics were appalling. But I just remember it being fantastic. And he was up front there for Coventry. He'd score 10 goals um, over three Premier League seasons with City. 
And he'd also be sent off for punching Danny Mills and receive a wow. considerable ban. Uh, I watched this back on YouTube and it, it was a bit bizarre. It was a kind of floppy left hook uh, when Mills had barged him out the way. But Coventry, amazingly, did win the game 2-1 thanks to an 85th minute deflected strike by Trent Solvet. So uh, there's one for the history books for you. I'm not a massive fan of Danny Mills' punditry, uh, mm. but I feel a punch maybe wasn't, wasn't it wasn't worth. warranted there wasn't, wasn't a lot warranted. in this challenge yeah. i have to say i think john slightly overreacted but although he's obscure and nostalgic over here in the uk he has somewhat hero status over in australia his best playing achievement was the penalty that he scored for his national team in 2005 it was a decisive one in a game against Uruguay and it sent them through to the FIFA World Cup after a 1-1 aggregate draw with Uruguay. That was the first time they'd qualified for the World Cup since 1974. So he ended a, a more than 30-year hiatus for Australia um, and has some hero status. So much so that it was actually voted by Sport Australia into their Hall of Fame one of the greatest moments in Australian sporting history. Just to attempt to compete with your little trips to the Netherlands when you were younger. Yes, yeah. I have quite bizarrely seen John play live. It was for Melbourne Heart. Oh, okay. (laughs) I think it might have been the last club of his career before his retirement. Yeah. Um, I remember him essentially being a, a proper journeyman that time obviously a stalwart of Australian football. They also had a a Brazilian winger called Alex Terra, who was honestly unbelievable. I know the standard of Australian football is a little lower, but this was a serious player. And I just Wikipedia'd him, and I see that he had an incredibly successful spell post-Melbourne Heart with Dijon Citizen, which is a South Korean team in which he scored 20 goals in 21 games. So I clearly saw the talent on display that day and uh, he didn't let me down. You are quite the scout, Arthur. The reason I wanted to talk about Aloisi is because, frankly, he's tried to build on that reputation he has in Australia and uh, is in the middle of hopping between different Australian clubs. He started at Melbourne Heart It wasn't his best spell, um, to be honest, his first spell in management there. But he improved at the Brisbane Roar. In both of his first two seasons at the club, the Roar achieved a top four finish in the league and made it to the semi-finals. Uh, And despite being sacked in 2018, he did leave as the longest serving manager for the Roar with a 38% win ratio. He now is currently in management with Western United from Melbourne and his current roster includes Alessandro Diamanti, the former West Ham midfielder uh, and actually a former Reading keeper, Jamie Young. So well worth watching out for this season. I did notice that yesterday they played their first game of the season and sadly lost at home to local rivals, the Melbourne victory with a goal from former Wolves defender Roderick Miranda. So um, if that's anything to go by, it's not the highest standard of football, but certainly John Aloisi is trying to make it in his native Australia. And I really hope one day uh, he does well enough to come back over to Europe. Who's partnering him? I have finally found a cause 
to include a true legend of the game in 11. I've gone for Paolo Onechop. Oh my word, is he a manager? He is indeed, or he was, let's say. <laughs> wow. We will get on to that. However, first, the legend's career. He spent the early part of his career in Costa Rica. And actually on that, I have a little quote, and this is from Sarah Winterburn, who wrote an article on him in Football 365. She says, he scored 20 goals in 14 games for CS Herediano. Fine, but spread over a quite unfathomable four years. Given that I cannot find one single scrap of visual evidence from that time, I assume that Paolo was essentially employed on a freelance basis. That's actually pretty one-choppian. An improvised <laughs> early career. I like to imagine him being, for most of that time, as he waited to arrive on the big stage, an avid bird watcher, generally being found with binoculars inside a Costa Rican hide, <laughs> noting the behaviours of rare, fiery-billed arrakens in his notebook, at which point there would be a tap on his shoulder and he would be asked to go with the messenger boy to the stadium in San Francisco, where he would score one of his 20 goals in 14 games across four years, then return <laughs> to bird watching. <laughs> How one choppian is that? Quite why that 14 game spell across four years attracted the attentions of Derby County, I don't know. Uh, but in 1997, he moved to them for £600,000. And he marked his debut with a memorable goal against Man United at Old Trafford. He beat four players before slotting past Peter Schmeichel in a 3-2 win. The goal was later voted the greatest in the club's history by Derby fans. In 1999, he signed for West Ham and he formed a deadly partnership with another Paolo, Paolo Di Canio in this case. The two combined to score 31 league goals in the 2000 season and he won the Intertoto Cup. There's an interesting quote as well about Paolo Di Canio from Paolo Onechop. He said, before games, he would talk to his legs and kiss them saying, come on, you're going to score today. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so weird, but it's very Paolo Di Canio, isn't it? Very, I can imagine that happening. Following the arrivals of Davor Suka and Frederick Canute, he was sold to Man City, where he had another spectacular debut. He scored a hat-trick against Sunderland in a 4-2 win. Sadly, injuries afflicted him at City, but he did still show sparks of quality. He scored 27 in 64, including the winning goal in the 2003-04 season against Newcastle that effectively kept them up. His career wound down in journeyman-like fashion. He had stints in Spain, Qatar... Costa Rica, Argentina, Japan, and the US. Before he went into management, he first managed uh, the aforementioned Herediano. However, he retired after less than a year, citing that the team's performance was low and that he wanted to further his studies in England. He later expressed dissatisfaction with the administration of the club. It does seem like quite a lot of finger pointing from Paolo there. Yeah. I mean, I would consider him probably the prime source of the team's low performance. Is that not fair to say? I think you, you would have to assume so, yeah. And and Herediano, admittedly, I don't know a lot about them, but to criticise them for their administration feels like you're really clutching at straws. It does a little bit. Uh, his next stop was Uruguay Coronado in 
Costa Rica, bizarrely. Yeah, that's that's nice and simple, isn't it? He then became assistant at Costa Rica and was promoted to interim manager in 2014, during which time he guided Los Ticos to the Central American Cup and was offered a role on a permanent basis on account of that victory. So already some silverware in his fledgling career. Sadly, though, his coaching career came to an end with controversy. Uh, Just seven months into his full-time reign, he became embroiled in a bizarre fight with a security steward as Costa Rica under-23s took on Panama. Uh, In the furore that followed, he decided to step down as manager, and he's not been seen in management since. And I think that's rather sad, considering he is such a character of the game. He never really did much in his career without controversy. He was a fiery character, and that really transferred through to his management style. Yeah. Um, but all end in a, in a fight in an under-23 game seems like such a damp squib. It, it does, but I, I mean, if ever there was a player that was classic the 11, it is Paolo Wanchop. So I'm really chuffed that we have got him into a team. Well done, Arthur. Is it away to one chop? One chop comes into the Manchester United half, dribbles on, finds some space, goes into the box, shoots, and it's in! What a run! Well, as Arthur mentioned, there is always a position that's up for grabs in our 11s. You can head over to at 11 pod, the word, not the number, and place a vote for your favourite of these. This time it's the goalkeeper. And our first nomination comes in from Footballers of Wikipedia. Paul from that wonderful page has got in touch at Ballers of Wiki to check them out on Twitter. And you can also find some fantastic T-shirts. Basically, they post the careers of players and you have to try and guess who they are. Um, It's all great fun. We've been challenged on many an occasion. Let's see who Paul nominates for this side. Looking back on his career as a footballer and now as a manager, he's one of those that will be remembered for his time in the dugout rather than on the pitch, mainly because he was very much a nearly man at the very top level. He was on the bench as Porto won their Champions League under Mourinho in 2004. He was at Deportivo La Coruña in the time of their success, but on loan in the Segunda Division when they won the league. And he also went to Euro 2008, but never even won a cap for Portugal. While most bizarrely, he was George Mendes' first client in football. It is, of course, Nuno Espirito Santo, formerly manager of Valencia, Wolves and Tottenham. As we all know, he's out of the job at the moment, but looks like he'll probably have a more successful career in the dugout than he did on the pitch. Yes, recently sacked Nuno Espirito Santo. I don't really remember him as a player. Neither do I at all, but it's very good to hear of that career there. Next up uh, is a nomination from the Sound of Football podcast. Please do check them out anywhere you get your podcasts. And also they've got a very entertaining Twitter page. Graham from The Sound of Football has got in touch. Let's see who he nominates. It's not just any goalkeeper. It's one of the few men who define the position. One of the greatest goalkeepers of all time, Dino Zoff. Now, his career as a player has seen him included in many top 11s over the years. He won six league titles at Juventus and at the age of 40 captained Italy to win the World Cup in 1982. But now I have to make the case for his inclusion on the basis of his career as a manager. Dinozov never won a league title, even at Juventus, where he managed for two seasons at the end of the 80s. 
a period dominated by Berlusconi's Milan, but he did win them the UEFA Cup and Coppa Italia. After Italia 90, he moved to Lazio, where he would be for eight seasons, first as manager and then sporting director. He helped transform the team that would go on to dominate Serie A under Sven-Goran Eriksson. He left Lazio to take charge of the national team after France 98. He succeeded Cesare Maldini, whose dated defensive philosophy, along with that of his predecessor, Arrigo Sacchi, had turned the Azzurri into a parody of themselves. In the immediate era after the removal of the backpass rule, they had reached a World Cup final, but looked like a child that had had its favourite toy taken away. Zoff took a young squad to Euro 2000, but they were the surprise package of the tournament, winning all of their group games and knocking out co-hosts the Netherlands on penalties in the semi-final. In the final, they faced the world champions France, led for most of the second half and got to within 30 seconds of becoming European champions before Sylvain Wiltord equalised for France, who would go on to win in extra time with a David Trezeguet golden goal. Such a performance should have set Zoff up to lead the Azuri to Japan and Korea, but in the immediate aftermath, the Italian media turned on him. Well, Silvio Berlusconi did, which is much the same thing, really. Zoff resigned, and once Sven left Lazio to replace Keegan at England, he went back to his old club, but left before the end of 2001. His managerial career is perhaps more about what could have been, summed up by the one decision he regretted most. He should never have sent Gaza on holiday. Yes, wonderful pick there. I knew him as a brilliant player, but not as a manager. And actually, it's bizarre that because his managerial career is far more recent times than his playing career. So very, very good pick. Yeah, really interesting. Big thank you to Paul and Graham for reaching out with those. I'm going to nominate one, Arthur. Okay. What about Leonid Slutsky? <laughs> the Russian coach, wasn't he? Yes. Um, I mean, his playing career was incredibly sketchy. Uh, <laughs> he would only play 13 games in professional football in the Russian lower leagues with FC Zvezda Gorodisha, who no longer exist and barely have a Wikipedia page. So I have very little to say about it other than the fact that Slutsky's professional playing career ended aged 19 after he injured his knee falling from a tree while saving his neighbour's cat. (laughs) His comment on this. Now, it is very funny, but not so back then. My left knee broke in a thousand pieces like glass. So uh, sad that we never got to see Slutsky kind of move through the uh, Russian leagues. He was a goalkeeper by trade, but his fledgling and short-lived career as a player was more than made up for by how successful he's been as a manager. He's notoriously a bit mad. He performed a rap at the wedding of former Russia striker Roman Adamov, who played for Slutsky's under-10 team at Olympia. And he's been known to do this for a number of players throughout his career. He, he's much loved within the dressing room, um, but by all means, absolutely bonkers. He brilliantly managed CSK Moscow between 2009 and 2016, winning three league titles with them, four cups, and reaching the Champions League knockout stages for the first time. Uh, He simultaneously, you don't hear that very often, managed the Russian national team, getting them to Euro 2016 too, um, although they did get knocked out early in that competition. 
But perhaps where I know him best from is his bizarre and unsuccessful spell at Hull City in the championship. He only managed four wins, which is incredible, really, for a manager of his pedigree in 21 games. Um, And he was eventually sacked with Hull City really struggling and uh, eventually getting relegated. At the time of recording, he is back in Russia, aged 50, and managing Rubin Kazan, where he's been more successful. So he's trying to get his managerial spell, um, managerial career rather, back on track. But Leonid Slutsky, let's not forget that brief spell, Arthur, at Spezda Gorodisha as a goalkeeper. And also the fact that he is currently, therefore, managing Kvarat Scalia. <laughs> is he? Oh, of course, at Kazan, yeah. (laughs) Oh, it's one perfect circle, this podcast. What a tutorage. That's brilliant. I'm going to nominate my favourite manager of all time, and I don't think this will surprise you, Nigel Adkins. I I can't say I didn't know that was coming. His playing career is quite little known because it wasn't hugely successful either. He began his career at Liverpool, was released without playing a first team game. In 1983, he joined Tranmere Rovers and made 86 league appearances in three years. He then transferred to Wigan Athletic, the club where he spent the majority of his career, uh, playing 155 league games between 1986 and 93. And then sadly, he also suffered an injury, this time a double spinal fracture at the age of 23, which very much curtailed his career. He then joined Banger City as a player manager in 1993. And he actually made, despite the fact that he was recovering from this double spinal fracture, 95 league appearances for them. And he guided them to two consecutive promotions before leaving the club in 1996. And then he retired at the age of only 31, moving into physiotherapy with Scunthorpe United. Mm-hmm. He then actually became the manager of Scunthorpe United and became a bit of a League One promotion specialist. He managed to get them up from League One in 2007 and 2009, before repeating the feat with Southampton in 2011, and following it up with a second consecutive promotion to the Premier League the following season. Sadly, he fell victim of the ambitious plans at St Mary's, or they were ambitious at the time, I can tell you then. And despite the reasonable start he'd made to the Premier League season, he was replaced by hitherto unheard of Argentinian manager Mauricio Pochettino. He had further spells at Reading, Sheffield United, another Hull City former manager and Charlton Athletic. However, he's been largely unable to replicate his former success, with the exception of, I believe, Hull City, where he's held in in reasonably high esteem. One moment, however, and largely the reason I wanted to include him here as a nomination, is a moment that lives long in my mind. It's this absolutely exceptional press conference that he held. Enjoy. What's the Nigel Atkins kind of recipe to how did you get yourself out of that? What did you say to yourself to, to pick yourself up uh, and to push forward? When you get what you want and you struggle for gain and the world makes you king for a day, just go to the mirror and look at yourself and see what the man has to say. Isn't your father or mother or wife whose judgments upon you must pass? The one whose verdict counts most in your life is the man staring back in the glass. For he's the one who must satisfy beyond all the rest, for he's with you right up to the end. And you will have passed your most difficult test when the man in the glass is your friend. Now you may be the one who gets a good break and think you're a wonderful guy. 
But the man in the glass says, you're only a fake. But you can't look him straight in the eye. Be true to yourself. I'm happy. I just absolutely love that he's just, oh, what a recital. What I mean, a he's, recital. he's just one of the most positive men, I think, this has ever lived. It, it's incredible, really. Yeah, a lovely guy. I can't say he revolutionised Reading Football Club during his spell. I think you got rid of him. He came to us. We went down. You stayed up. So that doesn't really bode well. But a lovely guy. And who knows? You might vote him into our In the Dugout 11 on Twitter. OK, so a few that narrowly missed out on the starting lineup in our In the Dugout 11 worthy of mention. Giovanni Van Bronckhorst, uh, I nearly had him in at left back. He had an impressive spell at Feyenoord, uh, rumoured with the Rangers job as well, I believe. And also wanted to mention Brian Laudrup, who played for Rangers, incredibly good player for the Danish national side. And of course, had that spell at Swansea, Arthur. And actually one that I wanted to mention, bizarrely, is Claude Anelka. Who's Claude Anelka? When you're the older, less talented brother of former Chelsea, Arsenal and Liverpool striker Nicholas Anelka, <laughs> you have to do something to stand out. In 2004, he put up £200,000 to any club who would take him on in a director of football role. Scottish First Division side Wraith Rovers stepped forward oh and handed goodness. the reins to the Frenchman. Coach Antonio Calderon left a few weeks later, making Anelka the most eligible to step in to the hot seat, despite having no football background beyond being Nicolas Anelka's agent. He promised a style which married that of Barcelona and Arsenal, and he listed Johan Cruyff and Arsene Wenger as his coaching idols. <laughs> Best of all, though, he promised to make Wraith the third force of Scottish football behind Celtic and Rangers. Having signed 14 players, several of whom had never played 11-a-side football before, it was to no one's surprise that he drew just one game and lost nine more before quitting in September 2004. Oh, my goodness. That's incredible. Claude. Claude on the bench. Definitely. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, and of course, if you have got suggestions, get in touch with us on Twitter. Um, I'm going to run you through the In the Dugout 11. Goalkeeper, that's up to you. A vote on Twitter. At left back, we've got Robert Yarney. Centre backs, Herman Lorideson and Chris Coleman. Right back, Willie Sanyol. Across the midfield, we've got Ilya Dumitrescu, Aliou Cisse and Sunday Alise. And then on the right-hand side... We've got Tamuri Ketspire up front, John Aloisi and Paolo Wonchop. Thank you so much for listening.